Welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and today, for episode five, I'm speaking with golf architect Ron Pritchard. Virtually every golf course that was built in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s underwent some sort of renovation or remodel in the decades of the mid-20th century up really through the 1990s. A lot of these renovations and changes came after World War II. Coming out of the war, there was a, a push across society in all, in all fronts, really, for more efficiency and modernization. Uh, the whole country was, was changing in its outlook of, of what the future could bring. And golf courses fell into this category of, of thinking that they could be improved. This was a time period when major changes were made to classic courses. Trees were overplanted. Bunkers were eliminated or shifted to make play easier for members. Greens were remodeled or had just been shrunken down due to maintenance practices. And the entire character of these Golden Age courses was uh, almost effectively wiped out. It was a different era, unlike today's era, where we have this great appreciation for the masters of architecture like Donald Ross and A.W. Tillinghast. Uh, those names didn't carry a lot of weight uh, often uh, in the, the mid-20th century. People were sort of ignorant of, of the, the pedigree of their golf courses. That started to change really in the 1980s when Ron Pritchard got involved. After working with a number of other architects, Ron went out on his own, and he developed this passion for classic golf course architecture and uh, a, real, a deep respect for, for art and history. He saw that these so many golf courses, uh, especially in the Northeast, had really essentially been paved over, and, and all the character and intent of the original architecture had been lost. He wanted to restore that, and he was really, as much as anybody else, on the forefront of a movement to reintroduce the concept of restoration into golf course renovation. Rather than going in and uh, with the idea of making a golf course better or something that it isn't, restoration is the idea that you go in and discern what the original intent was, what the original architect wanted to do with the golf course based on the land and the setting, and you restore that to its original size and shape and, and features and, and outlook as much as possible. Donald Ross, for instance, left you know out of the 400 or so golf courses that he designed and, and or renovated, often left very detailed sketches of holes and greens with clear instructions on how greens should be contoured, their size, their width, the bunker shape, the bunker depth. And a restoring specialist like Ron Pritchard will go to a golf course and find these records and take them. And if he can convince the membership and the greens committee uh, that what he's doing is the right choice for them, he can go in and reconstruct the golf course uh, just really as it was and as it played in the 19-teens or 1920s, maybe stretching the length off by adding some new tees so it's more relevant to today's lengths, but really going back and discerning the, the character of the architecture and restoring that. It, it would be like if you had a classic piece of art, uh, a painting that, that had not been taken care of or, or had been unearthed after decades or even hundreds of years, it would be a travesty to turn it over to somebody who, who cleans it up and then repaints over it thinking that, that they knew what the original artist was thinking and they could even make improvements on, on what was painted originally. No, you wouldn't do that. You would hand it over to a restoration specialist who would clean it up and present it in as close to exact form as was the artist's original intent. That's essentially what Ron Pritchard's been doing for the last 30-some years, and uh, nobody does it better than, than he does. He's respected throughout the, the field and, and the world as, as probably the foremost expert in, in old courses and, and how to recreate the intent and the forms that originally existed. 
that debate between renovation and restoration is waged almost every day in, in so many historic clubs throughout the country. It's very hard to get people on board to restore a golf course and, and recreate these features that seem so foreign to what they've been used to doing. But that's what Ron does. That's what he continues to do. We're going to talk about that with him. He's a fascinating guy. He's deeply passionate, as you can tell. Um, and this was a fun conversation. It went deep into the night, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Uh, you're up in New Jersey, right? Up in Pennsylvania, yeah. Okay. You're from New Jersey originally. Originally, yeah. Then I moved. I moved. I lived in Texas for a long time, and I, I still have a place down in Texas, north of San Antonio, and um, nice old place up there. And then I have an old house up in in Pennsylvania that was built in 1760. Oh wow! Yeah, that's well. I mean, you don't get. You can't even buy a 1760 house uh, anywhere outside the Northeast, basically. So if you like that style, that's, no, I mean, that's where you go. Yeah. It's great. It needed a lot of work when I bought it, but I, you know, I spent spent a lot of time and I spent some money on it. Obviously, you know, but it's really worth it. I had a had a guy out here today, you know, doing a little work to prepare it for winter. But um, it's it's great. It's nice to have it. You know, it's real quiet. And, um, yeah, I imagine. You know, you know, fun to work in an old place like this. For frankly, because it's I put in a lot of I spent you know I put in really good heating and it's got air conditioning which you never had before and. So it's been it's been you know been a a work of pride you know. So you didn't do a true restoration to your old house. Well, not really. It actually was uh, it, it was it was um, it was added onto in 1928. So part of the house is you know real old and the the walls are all plaster and some of the plaster is actually horse hair, you know, in mud and, um, and, but it's, it's three stories. So it, like it had servants quarters on the third floor. And that was, that was not something they did in, uh, 1760, you know, so, but, um, there's certain things I, you know, in 1928, they changed them. So I didn't change, I didn't try to change them back to, yeah, it, um, it's, it, it mirrors the course of uh, golf course renovations through the the middle of the 20th century where people, you know, could come in and do anything they wanted to a golf course. Uh, you have a house that's similar to that, it sounds like. Yeah, although, I mean, it was architecturally, it was, everything has really been done well, you know. The, the only thing is that some of the... Um, some of the fireplaces are not those big old walk-in fireplaces that they had originally here, I'm sure, but... Um, you know, so they, they put mantles on and they probably rebuilt the chimneys and things like that, you know? So, um, you know, I, it sounds like a great place. Yeah. I kind of had my dreams. I, when I went to college, one of my buddies, uh, his father was an American antiques dealer up in, up in uh, Connecticut. And he owned a house that was probably 90 years older than this one, you know, and it was just, just amazing. That would be that would have been my dream, I guess, to have a house like that. But there aren't even that many of those around Pennsylvania. That was in um, in uh, sort of western Connecticut, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're a little bit of a hard guy to to find. Um, you don't have a a website. Uh, you you don't really have that much of an online presence. It's it's a little difficult to dig up media stories on you. You mentioned uh, the other day. 
a little bit about why that is. I wonder if you could get into that and kind of your mindset on uh, why you take such a low profile. Well, I always felt, you know, personally, I, I, I just didn't have a stomach for self-promotion, you know, and I know that some of the really successful guys in the business have done that. I've been better at, you know, I've been better businessmen in that sense, but I just didn't have this, I didn't have the stomach for it. So, um, I purposely didn't do it, you know, and sometimes I worked with a couple architects who were, you know, who were very visible, let's say, yeah, I'm trying to be kind. And, um, uh, we'd love you. We'd love it if you would elaborate. <laughs> well, I work, I worked with Bob Monhage when I worked, I worked with him in Texas for a while. And I worked with Desmond Muirhead out on the West Coast. Now, what was and, um, did you work with Bob when he was Bob Hagee, or did he have the Vaughn in his name already? No, he was he was he had the Vaughn by then. Uh-huh. You know, he would wear uh, ascots and things. He was a he was a good guy to work with. Though I mean, he was incredibly generous and uh, a lot of fun. I mean, I could just I could just ride him mercilessly, you know, and. And uh, he took my teasing pretty well, so he was he was fun to work with. And you know, I worked with three separate architects really as I was sort of apprenticing. So you know, some of the things I some of the things I that they did, I did I did not want to do. But it was I can't say that any of it was you know not constructive in the final analysis. You know, it was just a personality difference that you had with these guys as far as the outlook of of being outgoing uh, mm-hmm. businessmen. Yeah, I just said, you know, I, I listened to a lot of speeches and a lot of sales talks when they would talk to clients and and memberships, and I just didn't, I didn't like what I was hearing sometimes, you know. Um, I mean, it's hard to go into detail, but, you know, I just, I, I felt like, you know, I just wanted to be completely sincere, I guess, and um, in the way I approach, I approach business, and I mean, it all stems, I guess, somewhat from my upbringing and where I went to school and the people that influenced me in life, the way, the way I view it. You know, I've always had, I've always had a tremendous affection for, you know, classical music. And I studied art a lot as I, as I was in school and I worked with some good painters. I'm not, I'm not sure I ever had the talent they did, but I, I really have been influenced by different people than most. I, when I was in college, I met Robert Frost. I didn't know him well, but I knew him a little. And you went to Mid- Middlebury up in Vermont, correct? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I met Norman Rockwell, you know, and you know when you meet people like that, I get sometimes they they shape your life in little ways, perhaps pretty quickly, you know. So. You know, I mean, tonight I was tonight when when I was doing I was doing a little work around the office, and then I turned on my um, my cell phone. I was looking at some things, and then I ended up listening to a to a violin concerto by Paganini. It was his first violin concerto, and it was it was being played by a young Oriental boy, probably sixteen or seventeen years old. You know, and I guess one of the things that influenced me most and in my outlook on life is that I have enormous respect for people who were here well before us. And I, I think, I think we make a mistake in, in our day, not, not to give proper credit to, 
to our forebearers, whether it was the earliest golf architects or the earliest musicians or sculptors or painters. Or, um, sometimes we think we have all the answers, you know, and everything that we do is the best. And I've never felt that way because I've, you know, I've studied early artists and it, my house was built the same year that, that um, Beethoven was born, for example, 1760. And, you know, when I, when I sit in my house, I, I really think, you know, that wasn't so long ago. And well, it's, the music it's also, that he, a, that's a pretty deep thought. And when you think about that, you know, Beethoven. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, when you, you know, Vincent van Gogh, I mean, he, his, his, he he lived only, you know, he died in, in the 1890s, early 1890s, I think it was 91. So well, that's only 100, what, 18 years ago. And we're 18, uh, 28, 20, 28 years ago, you know, and that's not that long ago. But he, he was almost without equal in this day and painted, he painted some of the most gorgeous paintings that exist in the world today. And they were painted in a day, you know. Anyway, that's kind of... Just on that topic, um, do you follow contemporary art at all? Not a lot, no. I don't. You know, I, I see it, but I... J, Jackson Pollock, I think, was neat, and, you know, I think his work was incredible, but um, I don't follow it too much today. Ar architecture, you know, building architecture, I was accepted at uh, Harvard and at and at Rhode Island School of Design for, uh, to, to go ahead and study architecture after I got out of the Army. But I was going to go to Rhode Island School of Design because I, you know, I felt like I wanted to be a, in an academic setting that where, where design was the emphasis, not so much time was spent on structural understanding, you know, and I mean, it's... Um, I'm trying to think of the architect out in California that I've met that has done such great work. I'll think of it in a few minutes, but he he his designs he he designs things in minutes, and then he has a team of he has a team of assistants that make it work, so to speak, as a structure, you know. But are you thinking of Frank um, Gehry? I am. Yeah, mm -hmm. I met him in Texas. I actually was working at a at the Woodlands, you know, sort of one of the new towns some years ago, and. Um, he was he and another architect out of out of uh, New Mexico were selected in a competition to design sort of the town center of the woodlands and uh, you know it was fascinating to listen to him talk but yeah it looks like when he anyway, designs I mean, buildings it, it they look like they're almost impossible to hold up they, how how do they build those what's the structure inside of, um yeah exactly exactly but you know they, he his his team of engineers and and internal architects, you know, they they figure out how to how to make it stand and you know uh, last, so to speak. Huh? It's the opposite of the old arts and crafts style where form follows function. This was um, form <laughs> function or form keeps up with the form. I don't even know, know what I'm saying, but it's definitely not the the exterior is not the result of what's holding the building up on the inside. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, in some ways that, in some ways that contrasts with with the things that I've really, uh, you know, learned to appreciate in life. But you know, so 
I, I brought up Frank Gehry to, you know, make a point of, you know, sort of what contemporary architecture, the direction that it's taken. And um, one, one of the, I remember when I was in college, I'd, one of the papers that I I wrote for probably when I was a senior, one of the, you know, one of the papers that was most necessary to, to write to uh, graduate was um, on early um, early home construction, and so I remember I went to uh, I went to the library in Hartford in uh, in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and I spent a lot of time doing all sorts of drawings and cross sections, and you know the way they the way they fit do the post and beam construction and the way they the way they put the structure together. I didn't get a very good I didn't get a very good grade on my paper. Remember that, but I thought I was really proud of it. So, um, so uh, what what was your childhood like? What did your mom and dad do? My dad, my dad was a was a builder. We built. He built. He built small developments of homes. He was from England. He'd come over here. He actually. He actually flew in the Royal Air Corps. I mean, I have some funny stories, but we don't have time for them. But. You go ahead, go the, ahead. We have time. Well, he claims he saw the Red Baron, you know. The, the German, von Richthofen, who yeah, flew that. Yeah, he'd, he'd have been one of the few who saw him and lived to tell. Yeah, he claims he saw him, but I'm not so sure that was... He was he was on the ground looking think, up yeah. through through some binoculars. I think he was really an honest man, but he might have, But that would sound a little bit far, you know, but... The fam- my family is orig- originated in Wales, and then he and then before he was born, his family moved to uh, moved to Birmingham, England. So, and then my mother was German. You know, imagine they were uh, they were married, I think in nineteen um, about nineteen twenty eight or so, and so here they were, you know, a German and a and. An, and an Englishman, so to speak, getting married and then going through World War II. Things I don't are, know how to yeah, marriage. Things were about to get messy there. Yeah, but they were. Um, yeah, both they both immigrated. They didn't. Neither of them had a particularly um, strong educational background, but you know, great, great parents. And we, I have a twin brother who, and I have an older brother who, uh, who I'm really proud of. Uh, yesterday was, or this weekend, I was thinking about him a lot because he went to West Point and. He graduated in 1957, and then he, because they were not graduating students from the Air Force Academy, he transferred to the Air Force, and then he went to Edwards Air Force Base and went through aerospace and research test piloting, But and he was really a terrific pilot, but he ended up flying F-4s in the, the, in the Vietnam War, and he flew over flew a couple hundred missions in over, over North Vietnam, so... Wow. He was quite a guy. He passed away about seven years ago from melanoma, and uh, I'm sorry. He's buried. He's buried at Arlington. Oh, that's thank wonderful. you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he was he he was a bright guy, and he got an got a good education, and somehow they let me in Middlebury. My my twin brother went to to local colleges in New Jersey, and uh, he lives in Texas now. He's he, he's the best. He, he's the best of the two of us. He's, he's really a great guy. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I can believe that. 
Um, so you're, you go up to Middlebury and, uh, you kind of immersing yourself in, in the arts. Um, is this, did you have a, did you have an appreciation as deep as it became before you got to college or is that where it, it really began to sink in and you're around Robert Frost mm-hmm. and meeting Norman Rockwell? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, it, it definitely grew while I was there. I ended up, I ended up taking a class early by, there was a, there was a, there was an art professor named named Arthur Healy, Arthur K. D. Healy, and he was a really interesting guy. He had um, his father wanted him to be an arch- I think an architect, and he didn't want to be an architect. He wanted to be a painter, so he um, that's what he became. You know, he was a, he, was a, he he was incredibly talented as a watercolorist, but he was absolutely one of the most fascinating, intelligent men I ever met, and. You know, I, th- I think he had an, an incredible impact on me. Just just attending his classes, it was way more than, uh, you know, just studying studying art and reading about other artists. And he, he taught you a lot about life, you know. He taught, us, he taught us about how certain people live in blissful ignorance their whole life because they don't, you know, they don't challenge themselves enough. And so... You know, I didn't. I haven't thought about it too much, but I think he had the probably the most, the biggest effect on me um, as far as strengthening my appreciation for art. But you know, I didn't realize this. You know how strong my affinity was for early architecture, and you know my really appreciate my appreciation for music because, for example, I mean nobody in my family ever listened to classical music. It's just something that I kind of you know, developed a great interest in and appreciation for, you know. Do you remember the first time you were exposed to it or the first piece of, of music that really moved you? I don't really, you know, and I, I'm, I don't think I'm by anywhere, you know, by any means the most knowledgeable, but, you know, there are, you know, certain things, um, there's just certain pieces Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto. I think you know some of it's the most sublime music I've ever heard. And you know, what's in a, for, in a, for example, and something that really fascinates me. I sang in a very good choir for a number of years at a at a big Catholic cathedral, and in, down here in Pennsylvania. And um, you know, uh, I realized that probably the best music written for the human voice was the music written for the church. So, you know, somehow I put these things together, you know, and I don't know how, it, I really don't know how it all happened. I don't, you know, how, how I ended up the way I am. I, I've seen your sketch. You sketch beautifully. Do you paint as well? I haven't painted in a while, but I, I, I worked with um, a fellow named Warren Hunter, who was a watercolorist in San Antonio when I lived in Texas. And I, I spent all my time in Texas for a while. Now I sort of split my time. I go, I have a place north of San Antonio that uh, that I go, you know, I go back and forth from from there, from from Texas to the East Coast. Here, I try to I try to avoid the warm weather. Yeah. I don't mind the winter mm-hmm. so much, so I don't mind staying here in the winter. But I, 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 if I do go to the ranch, I'm I'm going to try to. I usually go in the spring and spend time in in the fall. You know, you also. I don't know yeah. how we got the thing. <laughs> well, I do. I, uh, I'm just I'm I'm interested in this too. So uh, when you when you're out and you're traveling, do you uh, go to art museums? Do you try to listen to music? Uh, what look at look at certain buildings when you're around? 
I I do. I mean, it, what's what's kind of interesting I didn't mention is that um, uh, I was married. I'm not married. I'm not married any longer. But when when I was married, we had a we had a couple art galleries and we handled Western art, which was really, you know, for me, great. Also, what I have in my what I have in my in my house are really some some wonderful paintings by a, by an artist out of Santa, out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, but. You know, when I was when I was married, and we had we had art galleries. That was a pretty fascinating time too, because uh, I fell in love with some of the Western art that I saw. There's, there's a there's a fellow named Howard Turpening, T-E-R-P-N-I-N-G, who's in the, who lives in um, Sedona, and he's you know I think the best Western artist alive today. But he he tends to paint large oils and. You know, you know, all these paintings sort of capture a moment in time. I mean, they 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 tend to be mostly of Indians, but sometimes cavalrymen. So he's in a, in, a, in a sense he's a, he's sort of the modern Remington and Russell. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Remington and Russell of our year. You know, so that that was that was that was very interesting, and and I and I have a great appreciation for for the cowboy artists in a sense. I grew up in Colorado, and my dad always had Reming- books of Remington's art, and you you couldn't go too far without seeing little bronze statues that he made. And, uh, oh, sure. Kind of influenced wow. where I came from. Oh, so you so you go to Middlebury, and um, I know you're a, a pretty proficient skier as well. I just have now I'm developing this image of you uh, being 18, 19 years old, indulging in the arts and skiing in the winter. I mean, it sounds like a perfect way to do college i wish i could i wish my college experience was anything like that well uh, you know i wasn't i was as a as a, as a young fellow what, what i my primary sport when i was younger was swimming I, I actually went um i was a new jersey state champion in uh, high school and i was a state aau champion in new jersey when i was a boy i grew you know i, I guess i won my first state championship the senior men's championship when i was 13 and then um i re, you know i swam through high school and won the high school state championship and then i had scholarships to yale and duke and rutgers and um I actually went to Miami of Ohio because a family friend went there. So I, you know, my, probably my parents should have insisted that I go to Yale or Duke, but they didn't know, they didn't know the difference between Yale and, you know, between those colleges and any other college. So I went there and then, um, and then I left, I, we had skied quite a bit when we were boys. So, you know, I was, I was, fairly proficient when i got to middlebury i found that i you know i wasn't i wasn't as good probably as i thought i was because i was i went to school with several fellow who were who fellows who were olympians and but they helped me a lot so i i did become better i always had a certain certain amount of recklessness i guess that appealed to them so <laughs> they helped me a lot but you know that probably uh that's probably the sport that i i I care about the most today. I don't get to get to ski a lot, but you know, I love it because it, because it's nice to appreciate the winter, you know, the beauty of winter is, mm-hmm. is wonderful. I think, you know, last weekend I, I drove up to Middlebury. I, I've only been there probably seven or eight times, I guess, since I, since I graduated, but they, they retained me to redesign their golf course recently. So we're, we're, I'm working on that, but 
Excellent. Um, I went up last last weekend because my my best friend in college, who was on the Olympic hockey team, was um, um, inducted into the Middlebury College Hall of Hall of uh, Sports Hall of Fame. So, I mean, that was that was a great weekend. He's a good guy. Lives out in Sun Valley, and uh, I met Gordy Eaton and some of the other fellows who he was he was you know probably seven or eight times on the U.S. national team alpine skiing team and and competed in a couple of Olympics. So, I mean, that was, a, that was, that was really a lot of fun. Those are things that you're, it's always so worthwhile making a little bit of extra effort, isn't it? To go and be with old friends. Oh, for huh? sure. Yeah. It sounds like there's some, some pretty solid talent that's flown through Millid, uh, Middlebury in those years. Yeah, we had, and uh, in, in the years I was there, we were, we sort of competed division one in hockey, for example. And, we had we had a guy on our on the hockey team. I I I didn't skate I didn't skate on the hockey team, but we had a guy that was uh, his name is Phil Latrey, and he was from Montreal. He he still holds the collegiate record. He scored 250 goals in in his in his three years of competition because we they didn't compete as freshmen. So, uh, is that with or without goalies? Yeah, <laughs> that's proficient. Maybe I remember. Senior year, the the team was nineteen and one, and they um, uh, Phil Phil scored ten goals in one game. I guess he scored ninety goals in in twenty games, and um, he had nineteen assists. You know, I wow. I I saw him a couple of years ago, and I kidded him saying, "No wonder you scored so many goals; you never passed the puck." You know, <laughs> why would he? You know, you can't make take the chance that somebody else is going to get get their shot blocked. Yeah, but that but they we really did have some good. Good athletes, and the the fellow that uh, Dave Spryberger is the fellow that was the was my uh, my best friend, and he came from Duluth, and he had he had twin brothers that were a year older, and they both attended Middlebury, so they they had an all brother line. Dates was the center, and Bobby and Jerry were wingers, and that was you know so that was those are those are great years. They don't offer athletic scholarships at Middlebury. I don't think they do at Williams and any of the little Ivy League schools, sort of, you know, which is what those schools are considered. And So they're not getting the athletes now that, you know, they're going to Minnesota or somewhere, the other bigger, bigger hockey schools, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess we should try to pull this back into golf somehow. Um, what, Where did that come from, and wh- at what point did um, did golf become a part of your life? Well, I mean, I, when I was in high school, we we I wasn't a good player, but I, you know, but I I worked hard on my game and became a halfway decent halfway decent player. I did play at Middlebury and I lettered on the golf team. But um, during high school, we I remember we got a we got a, a a Christmas present one time. My brother, my brother, my twin, and I we each got a set of uh, clubs with. A, you know, with a, I guess it was a driver, a three wood, a, a three iron, a five iron, a seven iron, a nine iron, and a putter. You know, and so we we sort of both took up the game, and I, as as most people do, I fell in love with it when I started to play. But I wasn't great, and then my background was I knew a lot about construction. And my my twin and I, we would we would drive small equipment, bulldozers and backhoes and things my dad's construction projects and then I was always artistic so I served a couple years in the uh, in the army as an officer in the army after after I gra- graduated from Middlebury and then 
when I got out, I went back to work with my dad and my twin and then just decided that, you know, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So, um, I decided, well, what I wanted to do was be a golf architect. My parents didn't even know there was such a profession and there weren't many in the business at the time. So I wrote Robert Trent Jones and I think I wrote about four architects and the one I wanted to work for was an architect named Joe Finger, who would design a Concord a, 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 a golf course up at the in the at the Concord Hotel in the Catskills, and it was called the Monster. It was yeah. seventy six hundred yards, and it was in nineteen sixty three. It was like the longest it. course in the country at the time, yeah. for sure. You know, I remember. So I remember I seeing it, that in, in in golf books and and magazines. You know, it was like, wow, that thing's yeah. incredible. Wow, seventy six hundred yards. Oh, and yeah, and it was a, and it was a it was a good golf course. I I had I played it, and so, you know, I decided that's the guy I wanted to go to work with. Work with, and um, he's from he was four. from Texas, right? Yes, he was from Houston. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote him, and I sent him some some of the drawings that I did, and some some of it was I'm sure little golf sketches, but some was just plain some of the other artwork that I did, and. He needed. I, I remember I interviewed with Robert Trent Jones, who lived only about twenty miles from where I, I lived as a boy. But anyway, Joe was who I wanted to work with. He called me up one day and he said he told me that he had a he had a project going on Long Island, and I was living in northern New Jersey at the time. And he said he had a fellow that was the construction superintendent on the job who had who left and went back to Texas. So. I interviewed with him in New York City and convinced him that, you know, if he gave me a chance, I told him that, I said, you don't have to pay me anything. And if, if, if you don't think I, if I can't, you know, if you don't think I can do the work after uh, six, eight weeks, then, you know, let me go. You can let me go. But so he did hire me. He didn't pay me much. <laughs> but uh, I lived in an old trailer. And actually the, the interesting thing, it was, the course was the Glen Oaks Club, where uh, that, where uh, where they had the um, yeah the uh, one of the playoff the series FedEx, yeah yeah the FedEx Cup playoff mm-hmm. this year Dustin won it you know so <laughs> did you have anything um, to do with the 18th hole that got ridiculed for uh, being so weak that it could be assailed by a 335 yard yeah. drive? <laughs> the only thing I did with it was build it, but I didn't design. <laughs> I didn't lay it out, it's but a tough, Joe tough crowd out. when you're getting beat up for that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, actually, I I thought it was great. I thought it was a great finish, and and I'm glad that you know. I mean, I think Dustin hit a, a phenomenal drive. He he took a big gamble, yeah. you know, to try to carry the lake in the direction that he did, and he apparently didn't apparently didn't carry it by much. I I was watching it, but I can't remember how much he carried it by. But the the, the kind of neat thing was that. I called a superintendent because I liked what I was, what I saw on television. I know they had had some work there recently. So I called him and I was just talking to him. I told him who I was and what my connection with his club was and, you know, congratulated him on, on what he was doing. And he, I asked him if they had rebuilt the greens and he said, no, he said, oh, he said, Ron, all the greens are original. The exact same, the exact same greens that you built. I think it was 47 years ago. Wow. So, I thought that was, and I was proud of that because I know they were built in, you know, very, very carefully from a structural standpoint. Joe was a, Joe was a Phi Beta Kappa engineer from MIT, a chemical engineer. And so 
he was incredibly bright and he was a, a good player, lived in Texas, good golfer. And so, um, you know, he, when he decided to become a golf architect, he had that, you know, real deep probing inquisitiveness of, about how things should be built properly. And did you, did you have experience uh, building golf courses or landscape architecture or was your experience in uh, residential or mm-hmm. commercial construction? What gave you the confidence no, actually, to, to be able to step onto a site like yeah. a project like that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I was as green as grass, you know, and uh, I mean, I laugh about it today, but um, I was, con- I, you know, I did have a lot, I did feel I could learn and, you know, and it was, in, in most respects, it wasn't. If you could read drawings and you could listen, you know, it was a matter just really of, of, of producing the work that Joe had put on paper, you know, and I would agonize over the, over things to get them exactly the way he drew them. Now I realize that that's probably not the the smartest thing to do. You know, there's a little, there's a little room to relax, but I didn't, you know, so I just jumped in and I was way over my head, but I just, I really, you know, just worked really hard. And, um, of course it was in a tremendous learning experience also, but there was one fellow that had worked for Joe in a similar capacity. He, he lived in, he lived in uh, Atlanta so he came up a few times to help me out. Great big guy, uh, Jim Shirley. He had played with the Chicago Bears, and he, so he became a good pal. That he, but he, you know, would explain things to me. But it, it's not that hard. Even even today, it's just not really that hard. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot you have to learn, but um, most things are logical. You know, from a from a structuring standpoint. Now they. You know, they do a lot of different things today, put in uh, XGD and things like that for drainage and so forth. But So how long were you, you, with, know, how long were you with Joe Finger before you moved over to work under uh, Bob Van Hagee? Yeah, I, went, I joined Desmond after what I, I worked with. I worked oh, you went with to Joe, Desmond Marriott next? Yeah. Okay. I worked with Joe for about um, five years and mostly... You know, I built I built a golf course. One of the courses I did was Colonial Country Club down in Memphis, where they had the uh, where they used to play the FedEx, uh, the the Saint the Jude Classic before I designed the uh, TPC down in mm-hmm. Southwind. Yeah. So, um, but after what what happened next was that um, I read that Desmond Muirhead had been commissioned to duplicate the old course in 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 St Andrews in Japan. <laughs> And so that was, you know, that came up, popped up on my screen somewhere. I don't know where I read it, but I decided, well, I'm gonna, I'd like to be involved with that. So I called Desmond and told him, <laughs> I guess I was a pretty good salesman at that when I think about it. But anyway, I told Desmond that I, you know, who I was and what I did and that I wanted, wanted if he had an opening. And, you know, he said he'd like to meet me. And we met in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I, I interviewed, I interviewed with Desmond and, you know, and I, for some reason, he hired me. <laughs> was this was this before or after he worked with Nicholas on Murfield Village? And this was just this was pretty much at the same time. It was actually right at the beginning of Murfield, and that was and that was when Jack and Desmond kind of split. Shortly after they started Murfield, and uh, Jay Marsh, who worked for Desmond, went to work with Jack. And in a sense, I probably took Jay's. I probably took Jay's position with Desmond mm-hmm. as sort of the the in-house uh, designer because I was doing a lot of the drawings by then. E- even with Joe, I had started 
in the, in the third and fourth year, I started to do some of the drawings for him. So, you know, Devin basically hired me to run the design division of his company. And he had some, I mean, he had some fascinating people. Desmond was a real, was an amazing character. You know, I can tell stories all night about him, but he was just an amazing character, bigger than life. You know, and he he really got into um, the into the uh, deep uh, esoteric side of architecture a little bit later on. Was that would, were you picking up any of that mythology uh, motif when you worked with him, or was that a late career move for him when he went really off the the deep end? Mm-hmm. Just a little. What happened? Desmond also owned an art gallery in a little shopping center close to uh, Newport Beach, and I can't think of the name of it. But Desmond bought. Desmond was really influenced by by contemporary art. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember he had a great library of old books, which he gave me, which I'm still in possession of. I mean, I own you know some of the first editions of some of the greatest early architectural books and, and um, because Desmond gave me the books, but I, I remember asking him one time this question, you know, because I was reading his books and I, it didn't look like they had been poured over very much. So I said, Desmond, how much does, how, how much has, has Donald Ross and Alison McKenzie and how much have they influenced your work? And he said, not at all. Hmm. So I said, well, where, what's your influence? And he said, ARP, Brancusi and Henry Moore, and they were all contemporary sculptors. So <laughs> that pretty much says it, you know. So Turns out Desmond might have been in the in the wrong business. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily translate <laughs> over into great arc, golf course architecture. Yeah, but he, you know, really was just it was land sculpture more than anything else, you know. Yeah. And, and he, you know, I, I what I what was helpful working with Desmond was some of the people he worked with were incredibly talented artistically and from a creative standpoint. There was a guy named Sergio Ocades and Desmond did some some interesting land planning where he would he would and Sergio would design these 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 beautiful villages and things, you know. And some were some were never built but some were and um so that was that was an incredibly good experience just being around him for example, you know. But the truth of the matter was he wasn't from my point of view, he wasn't really a good arc, good golf architect. I mean, if it, you know, I can't, I can't imagine anybody who doesn't really have some, some appreciation and sensitivity about the early architects being a good architect. Yeah, as, as a, as a younger man, you developed an appreciation for, for art and, and classicism and, and historical relevance. Are you, tr- are you picking up, on uh, at the same time the the classic golf course architects and is this kind of appreciation for them building inside of you as you're working with these modern designers and at what point does that really kind of take over your mindset and become the inspiration for what you've been doing now for the last 30 or so years well there's a couple things one when i grew up as a boy i I lived seven miles from a golf course called the knoll oh sure in in northern new jersey Mm -hmm. And and that's a golf course that was built by Charles Banks, who worked with Seth Rayner. Steam shovel. Yeah, steam shovel Banks, and it's still a pretty pretty neat old golf course. And um, you know, so I, I went I would I would ride my bike over there and caddy on occasion. I mean, I didn't do it every weekend or anything, but I you know I, I, so so certainly that had a big impact on me. The simplest, the simple beauty of that golf course 
had a lot to do with it. And the rest, and when I was, when I'd come back from uh, the army, I was a halfway decent golfer then. I mean, I guess my handicap, to be honest, was a four or five somewhere in that area. So pretty good, pretty good golfer. And I played a lot of. Um, I used to play in the Jake's Cup up at the, up at the Country Club in Brookline. I don't know how I how they how they ever let me on the course, but they did. And um, you know, and I I played a lot of other good courses in in New England and New Jersey that were old classics. You know, raw, old Ross courses. You know, so that that certainly was a was the beginning of me developing a special appreciation for that kind of architecture. But then when I worked with Desmond, every time I had a chance, I would I would spend an extra if I went I had to go into a town, you know, let's say San Francisco, because we were we were doing the uh, we were working on the uh, um, Presidio Army Base golf course. I would go to see San Francisco Golf Club and and get down to um, Cypress Point and so forth, you know. So that, you know, that had a lot to do with, it. I would, I didn't, I hadn't traveled overseas until, uh, until I started to work with Desmond. He, when almost immediately he sent me over to St. Andrews to, to spend some time in Scotland because we, because he put me in charge of that course that they were going to build in Japan. Yeah, by, by the way, how did that, so, how did that golf course turn out? I, I'm not familiar with that. It, it was never, it was never built. Okay. <laughs> and we, we did all the drawings. I have all the, um, I have all the original topographic mapping of the old course, which is really kind of cool because it's it's in metrics, but it's you know really um, it's a really tight topography. Bad, so yeah. it's all it's all great big long mylars I have in my um, in my plan room, you know. But like they couldn't get one small piece of land in the middle of this piece of property where we wanted to build this course. So it, they actually built a course called New. We built a course called New St Andrews, which I was involved with. And then the old course was going to be attached to that club. It's not too far from Tokyo. You know, and I'm, I'm obviously glad it was, never, it was never built, although it would have been fun to work on. But <laughs> we were moving something like um, 6 million cubic meters of dirt. We would knock off the top of hills and fill valleys to build this flat site, you know. Well, it was it was Muirhead's name on it, not yours. So it, would, it might have been interesting to see that. Yeah. Yeah, it would have, it would have been you know, but you never could. I mean, you never could re, could replace the wind and so forth. Oh, you know, of course, those yeah. are so so fun to, fun to think about. Yeah, so um, it, when you got in, when you opened up, kind of hung out your own shield. Did you know that one thing that did you know that you wanted to become what you have become, which is somebody who um, r- really restores classic architecture not just a renovation specialist but somebody who has who's sensitive to what existed before and what used to be relevant and putting it back into place i did i I definitely i I absolutely did i remember the first one of the first projects i had and i'm not very not very proud of it i'd like to go back and do some work on it again was texarkana country club up in you know it straddles the texas and arkansas border the golf course was on the Arkansas side of the border, but it was an old Langford Moreau golf course, and it had been rebuilt by an architect out of Austin. I can't remember his name. I think his last name was Howard, but but I can't remember his name, to be honest. And so they hired me actually to redesign the golf course, and then they when I, when I went up there, I asked if they had any old plans or any documentation. They gave me the original set of... Um, 
of Langford and Moreau's drawings. Mm. And so, you know, I'll back up a little bit. When I, before I started, when I was thinking about going into business, I went and, I went and talked with a fellow named Putt Pierman who had, who had run Jack Nicholas's organization and he had left Jack and he was living in, uh, he was actually in Houston, Texas. And I was living, of course, north of Houston, up in the woodlands. And so I went to him and, you know, I told him I was thinking about going on on my own. And, um, you know, I kind of wanted some advice and just just to sort of vent what I was thinking about. But he said, what are you planning to do? And I told him I was going to I want to focus on restoration of of golf courses. And he said, what what do you what do you mean by that, Ron? And then I, I explained to him, you know, that what had bothered me was I so many great golf courses had been renovated or just completely redesigned. And a lot of the architects of that time you know, most of the very popular architects of the, say, say all through the 70s and early 80s were were really destroying the old golf courses from my point of view. And so I told, I told Putt that was what, you know, that was what concerned me in particular. And I wanted to try to see if I could do something about that. So, you know, I knew right away. But anyway, when I went to Texarkana, they gave me the old drawings and they really were, I think, great. And I was pretty, you know, pretty pretty much a rookie at trying to restore them. So I don't think I did the best job. But anyway, right away, you know, I sort of came right out of the chute with that as my. What was the problem with Texarkana? It was just a matter like because they were the first time you'd seen plans on paper. You had a hard time executing and getting the the features in the ground. Well, some of it was probably me not being able to convince the. the membership to to recreate some of these deep bunkers that uh, Langford and Moreau were are noted for, and some of it was probably just execution. You know, I I had the drawings, but I I had not visited enough Langford and Moreau courses at the same time, which I you know in in retrospect I probably should have. That's the first thing I probably should have done. But you know, I think it I think it it really certain certainly. Um, exerted an influence over what I did and maybe I'm selling myself a little short because I know that the club flew me up there a couple of years ago and they're really proud of, of what they have. But, um, you know, I just felt, well, I wish I could, wish I could do it again because obviously you get better as you, as you do things for 20 years or 25 years, you know? Yeah. You, and you mentioned like, you just said like one of the problems you, you had was convincing the membership to go all the way. I'm sure that was a very foreign concept for them to see those types of architectural features that had been buried for decades. But that's that's yeah. something that I'm sure you continue to confront today. You know, when we, we talk about restorations and renovations, it's a very hot topic. I mean, the mem- membership and green committees are uh, very, very mm-hmm. passionate, and there's a lot of a, a opinions and misinformation and egos involved and uh, some ignorance and stubbornness as well as good intentions too. That never goes away, does Mm -hmm. it? That's just part of the the game. No, it doesn't. And I mean, I I think that, you know, when people, when people, when they interview me, they, they, they pretty much know before I walk in the door, you know, what my, what my intentions are, I think, you know, but, um, you know, I can show them a lot of good examples of what we've done with we've done with photography. I try to insist that they, you know, make a visit to a couple of courses, whether it's Charlotte Country Club or we just finished restoring Portland Country Club at Maine, and that turned out pretty neat. And 
you know, I try to say, look, don't, I, I, I would prefer that you don't retain me until you go and see some of my work. So that's, so that's always a big help. But the, but the big threat today, Derek, is that you have younger and younger people that are obviously taking up the game, but I mean, they may, they may be, they may have been players since young, they're young, but now you have people that are um, younger taking over the uh, direct, you know, directorship or of, of many of these great old golf courses. And they don't have a, they don't have a rich enough understanding of, classical architecture they have many of them many of them may have traveled but they haven't absorbed very much even if they're over in scotland and ireland and so yeah that's that's almost a little surprising to me um especially in this Mm -hmm. this this day and age when information is so readily available and now this makes me think of something i was going to mention to you when you got into this i imagine that you were probably one of the only people specializing in, in restoration or even even trumpeting that that cause um so yeah. i can't imagine the the headwinds you must have been going against when i really first started getting into golf architecture seriously beyond you know doodling golf courses when i was a kid and looking at golf digest mm-hmm. pictures uh, it was you know around the late 90s early 2000s the same time the internet was coming on and it seems to me and you can correct me if i'm not right it seems to me by that's when i started to notice that restoration was becoming accepted if if not lauded it, it, it would it become mm-hmm. a, a cause that people because they had resources like golf club atlas and you could look at uh, club mm-hmm. histories online you could see you had access to more pictures you were much more aware sure. of what used to exist so that you were really at the forefront of of turning that that tide so that surprises me that you, you, there's a, a generation of people that aren't taking advantage of these incredible resources, these historical documentations and photographs and all the information that's out there, and they still are, you know, not receptive to, yeah. to your message. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah. Well, what, the, the problem really is where, where, it's, where it's apparent, you know, on some of the courses that we've, that we've really worked diligently to restore, there's now you find people that are, you know, saying, wait a minute, Ron, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're extremely concerned because the senior players can't get in and out of these bunkers as easy as we'd like, as, as they might like to, or, you know, you put a couple bunkers at the leading edge, edge of the fairway. And um, some of the members don't like that because they, you know, they, they hit ball, they hit their ball in it. But, you know, I mean, I have all the, I ha- I've heard all the, I've heard all the the questions and I've heard all the concerns. So I know how to answer, answer those concerns. But uh, I mean, I, I'm a few clubs I have just, I, I've stopped working with certain clubs that I did restore because I can see now where there's, there's too much of a push to start to soften up some of the bunkers a little bit, or maybe eliminate a few. It's kind of, you know, I mean, it's sad. It's sad from my point of view, you know, because they some of these golf courses when I first walked on them, they were they were old and tired and worn out, you know. And we put some new life back in them. But in a, if if some of these committees don't embrace their heritage, which is probably the thing that's most meaning meaningful to me, you know, what means most to me is that a club when we finish the work, they're, they're, that that they embrace the heritage of 
of the of the original architect and his work and understand his talent and take real pride in their golf course. And for the most part, that's what happens. But you know, there's 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 always a there's always a certain percent that they say, you know, well, you know, golf is supposed to be fun. And so I say, well, is it not fun because you, because you're not shooting pars? You're, if you're a bogey golfer, it's because that's the amount of that's that's your skill level, you know. So you shouldn't be expecting the the, the, the one of the biggest problems today is this, is that we have scorecards with a par on it, and everybody thinks they should be able to reach a green in regulation. In Ross's day, you know, there, there was no accommodation to, to the to the less to the to the weaker player or less skilled player. I mean, if they were, if it took them three shots to get to a, a hole that was 380 yards, that's that that's the way it was, you know. Now we got now we've got done, you know six six sets of tees on some of these golf courses, all to accommodate this 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 um, this determination to shoot low numbers and shoot pars. People don't, people just don't enjoy the experience. You know, I mean, I remember I was over at the Royal County down one time, actually walking the golf course and photographing it about four thirty in the morning. And I was pretty much by myself. I came over this hill and walked downhill to a, to the fairway. And I think it was maybe on the ninth hole or so. And there's a, there's an older guy pulling his cart with his dog and, you know, he didn't care whether he was making parts. He was just out there to enjoy the, you know, the scenery and the weather and fresh air. I always think that's, that's a much easier mindset to get into on, on a Lynx course or or in a certain environment Mm -hmm. when the weather is such a factor and you just, there's some certain days you just, you know, you're not going to shoot your best score because of the conditions or, or the the environment is not going to cater in the United States. It's a, a little bit different mentality when and memberships have courses that are so finely manicured and it's just set set up perfectly for them day after day after day. Of course, it's it's really hard yep. to break that mindset for them to think that they can go out and and play a, a solid round of golf every time. Sure, they want you know they want bunkers raked perfectly every day. I I tell the superintendent don't even rake them just just rake out the uh, rake rake out the damage that was done the day before and let it be let it firm up even if it's moist. You know, you don't have to go in there. With, you don't have to go in there with a crew or a trap rake and rake every bucket so it's got all those little grooves in it every day. How's but, how's that working? You know, how's that going over? Well, hopefully pretty good. I mean, I I'm I'm strong in my message. Um, I'd love it. And you know, you do me like we just uh, Beverly Country Club out in uh, out in Chicago, which I was working on their drawings tonight. As a matter of fact, that we're we're sort of upgrading their restoration plan, but. Two years ago, we we went in. There were some younger members that have joined the club who who really wanted to become a golf club rather than a country club, and so they they brought brought me in, and uh, we spent a long day together. And they ended up taking down probably another. Uh, we had we had probably taken down eight or nine hundred trees over about a ten year period, and they went and took down several hundred more trees as a result of the of the uh, consultation we had i was there a month ago the golf course looks just just incredible you know because now we can widen fairways you know we can't we're not going to push them out as wide as ross originally designed them but we can get some some really nice wide fairways and we can we can put the bunkers in the fairway instead of on the flanks in the rough you know 
you know, that's 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 the contradiction to the people I was saying before. They're taking over some of these clubs that um, don't seem to have the you know the the right perspective right. on on what the game should be. You know. Is that like a give and take? If if you could convince a, a superintendent or a membership to say, for instance, not rake their bunkers, which sounds like an amazing. I mean, I love that bunkers have to be hazards. That's the whole point of having them. But then you could also do something like you're widening fairways, you're capturing green space that was lost over time, so you're giving them more area to play with. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a viable mm-hmm. trade off that at some point their you know memberships will be willing to to accept? Yep, without question. I mean, they do. You know, they really. They we're 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 doing work at Riverton Country Club in New Jersey, which is close to where I live, and you know, and they just they bought into sort of the first time I did a plan, they you know they can't handcuff me a little bit, but this time they just said, "Look, Rob, we want you to do exactly what you think you should do to get this course restored properly." And one of the things we did, we're doing is widening fairways. I do that on every golf course I work on. If I can convince them to let me do it, you know, there's no reason not to. Although some people will say, "Well, you got to mow more grass, and you, it's going to take more chemicals and so forth." But you know, when you look at what what the USGA does to set up these golf courses for the U.S. Open, it's just it's the only the best word is just 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 say it's sad because. For example, Marion, or up at Baltus Roll, when they had, I guess they had the PGA there most recently. Mm-hmm. Every bunker was in the rough. You know, you couldn't you couldn't get a ball in the bunker unless you flew it in the in the bunker because it, because it was the fairways were narrowed down to the mid seventy feet wide. All and all the bunkers that are you know that are really out on the edges of ninety five to one hundred and five foot wide fairways, they just were all wrapped with with the bluegrass. You know. What, what what would happen at those on those golf courses if they widened out the fairways for a PGA or a U.S. Open? I don't think it would. I don't think it would have a significant distance when they when they had the um, we had the they had the Tiger Woods tournament at at a, at a Ronamink a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago. They had it. They had it two years in a row at a Ronamink here in Pennsylvania, and and I was pretty aggressive about asking asking the uh, PGA. They called the AT and T tournament. I was, I was pretty outspoken about asking them not to narrow the fairways, and they didn't. And and I think you know maybe maybe the winning score was a stroke a day better than it would have been, but not much more than that. Mm-hmm. I think twelve under won it. The the the, the um, Justin Rose won it one year, and I think it was twelve under. But you know they they don't beat the ball into the rough unless you really extremely narrow fairways. So for the most part, the, most part the pros are playing out of the fairway anyway. You know, you, you widen it a little bit. Yeah, maybe it's maybe maybe they're going to hit. Maybe two drives might stay in the fairway instead of jumping into the rough. And they're so good out of the rough, it hardly matters anyway. They 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 rarely miss a green out of the rough. You know, so I I don't you know if if a if, if a golf course is properly bunkered and has the right amount of topographic challenge on a putting surface. That's all you need to challenge the best players mm-hmm. length. I mean, obviously you need a certain amount of length t- today that, you know, you did 20 years ago. You, you could get by with a little less, a little bit less length, but 
the real key, the, the, the great architects, and not all their golf courses are great. Not every one of Ross's courses is 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 a masterpiece, you know. But the great ones, where where he or one of his associates had time to had the opportunity to really spend time, and they had a good contractor. The greens are just absolute magnificent works of art, and and it's and it's and it's a forgotten art today. There's a few architects, you know. I think. I think Tom Doak does does some you know nice greens work, and I think I think Bill Bill Coor does some nice greens work, but there aren't many. Yeah, also with with the courses that so many of the courses that they design, not all of course, but you know they have dunesy, sandy sites, which which you know you, you it kind of allows sure. them them to build a certain style of green with with a certain style of contour that. Um, you know, you're not mm-hmm. going to get in a in a suburb of a metropolitan area. You can do it, but you know the the bar is raised for a more excessive green contour on a sort of inland, non sandy site. Yeah, although although you can you know you, all your greens can be built out of sand. I'm not saying that they necessarily. But I mean, that's that's a subject for another conversation. Sure. I think, but. I'm just trying to think of where I was going, going with. Oh, what I was going to say, you know, one of the real problems today is is this concentration on stimping golf courses to to, to determine your stimp speed. And 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 what I'm trying to say is this: is when you when you when you when you determine the the speed of your greens on a golf course, you basically look for some of the flattest portions of a couple of your putting surfaces. And that's where you and that's where you stimp. That's where you take you, you take the stimp meter and you evaluate the speed of the greens. But there's absolutely no correlation between the stimp speed on on the flattest greens and what could be the speed on greens if you have a, if you have some real beautiful topographic character. You know, I mean, there are there are certain architects today that are contemporary architects and their greens are so flat and so boring that. You know, you're watching on television, guys have 70 footers and it's got a two inch break. Mm-hmm. But on the great courses where, I mean, let's just say you go to Royal Melbourne, for example, let's get it out of the United States, but you go there and you might have, you know, a triple break on a, on a, on a 25 foot putt, for example. And, and you, and you have, you know, you have, you have pitches that exceed 3%. At 3%, a ball will, if a green's cut at a, at, I'm almost going to say an eighth of an inch because that was, that's where I discovered it. On a green that was cut at an eighth of an inch and also rolled, I found out but after looking for several years a place on one golf course where, if you put the ball on the green on the high side on the on the on the high side of a slope and just turned it over one time with your finger, it would roll at the same speed until it ran off the green. So. That was so. What I'm saying is, you know, we there are a lot of greens on these great golf courses where where many, where big portions of the greens exceed three percent. So, I mean, if you have a stem speed of eleven and a half feet, for example, on the flat on a flat portion of your golf course, you you might have a stem speed of thirty five on the on the on the bulk of your putting surface. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what are your greens stepping at? Oh, they're at they're at thirty today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just a total—it's a total failure on the part of of the golf world to understand. There's no correlation between 
No, and that and I mean, that's something that you have to get on board with, right? When you're when you're going in and, and you have a set of of Don Ross's greens, you know, and he's got like plus five here, you know, minus four there, you know, he's got he's got some serious uh, change right, in, in right. elevations. You have to get on board with the club and the superintendent and make sure mm-hmm. that everybody understands that if you if you build that, they have to maintain it. Mm-hmm. They can't try to flatter their membership by getting a stim meter reading up at mm-hmm. eleven. Well, I, for example, I'm traveling, I'm traveling to a golf course this weekend. That's a, that's, that's a Donald Ross golf course that has some of the best putting surfaces of any of his golf courses. And I've told these people that they're at the tipping point on their golf course. If they, if they make them any faster, we're going to have to start rebuilding greens on the entire golf course. And that means we're going to have to, we're going to have to flatten them. We're going to take some of the, some of the slope out of these greens that are absolutely brilliant. I, it's easily one of one of his ten top ten golf courses, and they and they that's why they that's why they've asked me to come back and talk to them because I've made that point in writing and I want to get it over I want to get it across to the club you know now the superintendent do, do tell where club, what course is this where where is say this? that again what course is this I, I don't want to reveal that you can't tell us you what know, you think is one of the ten top ten Donald Ross green sets of greens no. that's what everybody wants to know no because i don't no because i don't want to discuss what you know i don't want i don't want i i understand ron i'm i just i mean that's yeah. that's a that's a that's a tantalizing bit out there we just left hanging but yeah well the thing is that um see see now the superintendent a few years ago his answer to me when we talked about this subject was well he didn't want his greens to to stimp at, slow, at at any slower speed than some of the some of his competition in the area, and I basically said to him, "You don't have any competition in the area, but if you're gonna if you're gonna quicken your greens to twelve or twelve and a half or thirteen, you know, I said you got you're gonna create really serious problems. You're only gonna have a two or three cupping spaces on the entire putting surface. So he's really a smart guy, and so." He doesn't even stimp now. He just, you know, he just he just mows them and and rolls them till he thinks he has them right, and that's it. I mean, he 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 knows his golf course well enough that they may be ten and a half. Really, there is at every club there's some dissatisfaction. There's a certain certain portion of the memberships that want the greens faster, but they don't understand the danger of of, of speeding them up too much. You know, mm-hmm. so right. How long did it take you, in your estimation, before you became where you felt you got to the point where you were supremely confident in restoring a Donald Ross or a Tilling Hass or whoever it may be, where you felt that you could take whatever you knew about that course or a set of plans that you discovered and and implement it to to the best that it could be? Well, yeah. So let's let's just say I've been doing it since. 1983 so that's you know 17 years plus seven right so we're 24 years of course i think um yeah i think this was sort of a steady progression all through the years but i mean i feel very i feel very confident now but i don't feel so self-assured that i don't really work at it i mean we're at one course we're working at right now you know i spent a lot of time just a few days ago studying ross's drawings and studying the green that's in you know the, the on site, and trying to come to grips with the fact that maybe the green wasn't built 
according to Ross's drawings in the first place. So then, and that's, and that's frequently a problem, you know, I mean, there are certain, certainly he couldn't visit every course and some, and certain courses were built before he had any real, he had any associates working with him. Even then, sometimes in the Midwest, I mean, they didn't, you know, the courses did not get much attention. So there was a contract. They were built by a contractor who had Ross's drawings, but maybe didn't understand golf the way Ross intended it to be played. So, so, so that was a dilemma that I had to face this weekend. And so, there, you know, there, you you have to make some tough decisions sometimes on whether I'm, I'm always I'm always I'm always strongestly influenced by producing what Ross put on paper. Mm-hmm. Because I'm so impressed by what he put on paper. I mean, I've never seen him duplicate a hole. Um, when Ross, the way Ross took, the way Ross worked, basically, he would visit a site and walk the ground for a couple of days. And, you know, in, in those two or three days, he had to figure out a routing for the golf course. And then he had to, and then he had to walk the ground as it, as it unfolded, according to the routing plan that he had in his mind and sketch individual holes, individual field sketches, you know, he took the time to actually sketch every bunker to an individual shape, let's say. Whereas today an architect would just put a circle and go back to his office and, 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 and create a bunker, you know? So, I mean, the man was, was extraordinarily in his, in his capability. And then the, you know, the sort of the honesty about the way he approached his design effort was great some people say he mailed it in mailed in work but i've never found that that to be the case i've i've i feel if you if you look hard enough you'll find that ross was there for a couple of days at the inception you know mm-hmm. so anyway that's why i'm gonna have i have such enormous appreciation for what he put on paper that i'm that that's that's first and foremost you know what i'm inclined to put on the ground and Sometimes that's sometimes that's a significant effort because the original the original construction is nowhere near like the drawings. And sometimes you just have to sort of fold your tent and say, well, we can't get we can't get there from here. You know, we just have got to kind of live with what we can and maybe bunker it properly. But we can't rebuild the entire putting surface, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm, so, I'm not sure if you just answered the next thing I'm going to ask. You might have, but um, I'll come at it from another way. Would you rather, when you go into one of these projects, would you rather have a complete set of plans that you can ex- execute, or is it somehow satisfying to have to use all the knowledge that you've accumulated to interpret what you think might have been there, and there, therefore you can be a little bit more creative in the process? I would always, I would always rather have you know, a good set of drawings by the original architect. Cause honestly, I, I'm not really, um, I'm not predisposed to sort of put my own mark on the, on the golf course. I, I work on a lot of really good golf courses and there's a lot of them that I haven't been selected for and never, and was never considered for that. I wish I was, but you know, I, my, my thought process when I first got into the business was that, and I didn't, I didn't feel like I could compete with Tom Fazio, for example, or Jack Nicholas, who were, you know, dominating the game as architects right out of right away, all through the eighties, for example, and the nineties. So, 
you know, I was in touch with what I, with what concerned me. And that was that so many great old golf courses were being destroyed. And my focus from day one was not to turn it into a Ron Pritchard golf course, but, you know, to be as honest as I possibly could in um, honoring the original architect. I feel, I feel and felt that there were a handful of architects a hundred years ago who were extremely talented and, I hated to see that a lot of their work was was being erased. You know, uh, I'm always I'm always it's real. Like we're we're talking to a course in the South right now that um, they when they when they talked to me they sent me uh, one of Ross's basically basically his 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 routing plan. And so in a sense that's all you really need. I mean you know he if if you have his field sketches he'll tell you how deep to build the bunkers and so forth. But um, if you have a routing plan, that's from my point of view, that's, 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 that's sufficient. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of them, but a lot of them see have no plans. I've, I've found the plans at river Oaks and at country club of Buffalo. And, but a lot of these, sadly, a lot of these golf courses don't have any plans. And, so you it's, know, it's, it's more, it's, it's more so the case. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like talking to you mm-hmm. that, that I don't want to put, I don't want to speak out of turn, but, it almost sounds like like there's you have a, a lack of ego or a perfectly balanced ego that you're you're satisfied with doing the the noble work of of restoring this great architecture rather than being able to you know exercise your creative juices that might be flowing within you uh, and to do to do your own thing. Does do does a part of you ever miss? Uh, not being, you know, not being a Fazior and Nicholas, and having an opportunity mm-hmm. to to uh, build a, a brand new golf course on a great site somewhere. Well, I mean, I would love to build something in Sand Valley, or I'd love to get one of those opportunities. Yes, to, you know, to do to do one. But believe me, I'd be so strongly influenced by the so so called masters. But you know, I I I I think I've been successful enough in other things besides golf architecture that I don't need, you know, I don't need, I, I don't, I don't need the, the plaudits of, um, you know, people fawning over my old, old, own work. I honestly, I'm very disappointed that when I did design the tournament players club in Memphis, that, that it was never bunkered the way I, I wanted to bunker it on paper. Cause I, I just, I had to work with Fuzzy Zeller and Hubert Green and they just had, you know, a different idea of what they thought was, proper bunkering so bummer we we sort of went with a different style i wanted it to be very classical you know with deep bunkering and real meaning for greenside faces so you couldn't hit two irons out of them you know but yeah that's the devil that's the devil's bargain you know to have to design with a with a tour pro you know <laughs> yeah yeah you know I, I mean of course i was lucky to get the opportunity you know it was, right it was a fun job a nice job in a lot of ways and and uh, but I'd love to go back and and rebunker it now. I mean, I haven't talked. I've never talked to them about it. But I I sort of opened the door a little bit last year. Maybe maybe this year I'll go down and talk to some of them. They really, you know, when I did talk to them, I hadn't talked to anybody there in years, and they were all really anxious for me to come back and and talk to me and visit with me. So maybe I'll do that this year. You know, I'm sure I'm sure they'll listen to this podcast and uh, and pick up the phone. You, yeah. If you guys are out there listening, go ahead and do it. Ron needs needs to get those bunkers in the in the ground the way he envisioned them. 
Um, yeah. I, I was talking to, uh, when I talked to Bill Core on this podcast, I asked him um, kind of what his relationship, his his business relationship was with you know, guys like Tom Doak and Gil Hans and those people who seem to get all the amazing uh, sites to work with these these days and he termed it a um, the mutual mm-hmm. admiration society and he said yes they're they're competitive but in in a in a good sense like in a and, and they're he's huge fans of, of of their work you're not the only one in the restoration game these days you started it but you know there are other players in there who also um know how to read a set of Donald Ross's plans or, or whoever, and we'll go in and restore golf courses. Uh, is it a mutual admiration society uh, from your point of view with, with your rivals and competitors, or um, is it always a case where you think that, that you could do it better and, and you know, you, you could even be critical of some of the work that you see? Yeah, I think, I think I'm critical somewhat, but, I, you know, but I also, you know, I'm, I'm thankful. I, I remember one of the, one of the young fellows, called me i i don't i'm not going to name his name but he called me maybe eight or ten years ago you know and said he really admired my work and so forth and that he was he was he wanted to do the same thing you know and just ask my advice you know and i i did i said you know this is a the more people that 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 are honest about what they're trying to do and can help some of these old golf courses that have been abused, you know, the happier, the happier, happier it makes me. And I, and I do feel that way. You know, I mean, I, there's been some, some really good restoration work that I haven't had anything to do with, you know, and I've been pretty busy my whole career. So I, you know, I was working, I've been working pretty hard the whole time. I've have about seven, six or seven jobs right now that I'm trying to do some drawings for not, not full, restoration or something but um, sometimes just a certain portion of the golf course and so i'm overloaded right now but it's you know it's 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 good it's it's good that the next generation carries it on also you know do you feel and like I think that, do you always feel like like uh everybody who's taking on the job restoration job is is putting in in the work that needs to be put in to execute the job the way it should be I think, I think, I think there are some guys that are just, you know, hungry for work. And so they're, you know, they'll, they'll talk, they'll, they'll tell people that, you know, their biggest influence was Donald Ross and they, and they probably have only seen Piner's number two or something, you know? So I don't like that part of things, but I mean, they're trying to survive, you know, and um, they might go in and, you know, do it at a price that's, that doesn't make much sense to me, but they'll get the work, you know, but, um, you know, they'll have to deal with that themselves. I, I really, um, yeah, I mean, I think some of that does happen and that bothers me a little bit, mm-hmm. but when it comes to, when it comes to, you know, you talk about Bill Corr and Tom Doak and, and Gil, for example, you know, golf is, golf is going in a pretty healthy direction right now, surprisingly, because, it was a mess for, I think, for quite a few years. And, uh, you know, and I think that uh, the one, the one thing it's sort of uh, the golf architecture is hanging on right now is most people are sort of doing these, these McKenzie style bunkers, almost everybody. The, the foundation of most contemporary, of most architecture today that's being done. And some of it is pretty good, but, the foundation is the bunker work. 
And I think the foundation should be the greens construction, mm. the design of the of the putting surfaces, you know. So, you know, I would I would I would just encourage guys to spend more time and you know, visit more of the old courses and really cuz I don't think that the, I don't you know, I know that this there was a certain generation of architects that now uh, are pretty much are, are not terribly active today. We, you know, that did not pay enough attention to to building putting services that were exciting and challenging. So you're you're saying you'd like to see uh, the, the architects who get really good jobs now even draw a little bit more character out of their putting surfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I, of course, I you agree. know, you, there I needs totally to be agree. a variety. I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just, I was going to, I was agreeing with you. There's nothing worse than, than going to a beautiful site in a great environment and having some, some uh, interesting options off the tee. And then you get to the green and it's, you know, it's, it's a two level, you know, slope mm-hmm. at, at two and a half degrees or whatever. Um, it's just that, Right. Yeah, and right, and right. You'd know better than anybody yeah, else to that. see these the 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 sets of, of plans that that you get your hands on all the time. How how creative and exciting a good green uh, good set of greens can be. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the problems is is that most of the most of the early architects their greens their greens design was really primitive. And um, uh, Bill Flynn, for example, you know they're they're the way you have to really learn what Bill Flynn did is go look at his work, you know, actually go and study his study, what he created because the, most of the early architects didn't design contour drawings, greens that have all the, all the contours running through them. That was one thing that Joe finger did. And, but even there it's problematic. It's, 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 it's very difficult to do, to do well. And then the problem is, is if you, if you, if you create green drawings that have all the contours in them, sometimes guys, you know, follow the, follow the drawings, you know, too aggressively or too seriously. I mean, and then, then they, mm-hmm. they kind of shut off the, the, the creative. Right. There's no intuition. Things. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think Gil has done some pretty interesting greens I've seen on a couple of courses that, uh, you know, I think, I think, I think that's, that's, that's probably a, probably a strong point of his, mm-hmm. which is, which is, which is unusual. And, and, uh, you know, men as a real compliment because I, I think I haven't seen enough of his work, to, you know, to know for sure, but I, I think he's, I think, I think he works hard at that. Yeah. That's good. Ron, we should probably wrap this up pretty soon. I'm going to, I'm going to end it with a, with a, a couple of questions, uh, pointed questions. And, um, what is the best mm-hmm. modern golf course that you've seen? Oh boy. Wow. Hmm. Gosh, I'm, I'm really having trouble with that. I'm, um, I can't even answer that right right now. To be honest okay. with you, you know, I'll give you a pass on that. Um, okay. What uh, in all your travels? So, what is the what is the most pristine uh, Donna Ross course you've come across? The the course that you thought had been altered the least over time. Well, the ones you know, the ones that you'll find that have been altered the least are a few in New England, but Jeff Cornish. Jeff Cornish did a lot of damage. He's a good old fellow, but he did a lot of damage on a lot of New England golf courses. One of the ones that we're working at, which I, which I really think is a, is, is, it's a 
can be an absolute masterpiece is Northland Country Club in Duluth, Minnesota. And Northland suffered because they didn't have enough money to do a lot to it, you know, so that's really been great. And I mean, North, uh, Duluth was one of the one of the really was one of the really wealthy cities in the United States at one time because of their proximity to the Mesabi Range and all the iron mines. And but over the years, you know, there was a big decline there, so they never did much at Northland. So that's so so that's of course I really like the only the only the one problem at Northland is that um, some of the putting services are not uh, services are not probably as good as Ross envision because he wasn't there to get them built correctly you know so the best the best Ross courses you're pretty much going to see are probably on the east coast mm-hmm. because he was he was here you know but in Rhode Island I mean there's some beautiful trigs an old public course in Rhode Island in Providence Rhode Island you know it's a great it's 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 seen a lot of real neglect, but the putting services are beautiful. So that, that's a course I'd love, you know, I've talked to the city about doing something with, but we haven't really come to any agreement yet. Is that often the case where, um, a course with the least amount of financing behind it historically is the one that's usually in the most pristine or the bones are the most pristine just because there was never any money to hire somebody in 1950 to come in and modernize it. Yep. Definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, Sometimes you know it's it's a matter. There's a lot of old, there's a lot of courses that not much has been done, but it wasn't. They were not really gems to begin with, you know. I mean, but um, as I said, you know, like Ross in nineteen nineteen twenty is credited with forty projects, and in nineteen nineteen in nineteen twenty one, I think it was in nineteen twenty, he's credited with twenty projects, and in nineteen twenty two with twenty projects. So, in in a period of three years he's credited with 80 projects you know mm-hmm. now how many could he have really spent that much time on you know traveling by train and car so a lot of, i think a lot of those are down in florida <laughs> yeah well so i mean what I'm saying, some of the some courses have not been touched much but they they weren't great to begin with yeah. but there are those there are those rare ones you find that have not been messed with and some of them are in, are in new england still you find some pretty neat old Neato Ross courses that, um, you know, that he or Walter Hatch, you know, probably had something to do with, and you know, they're they're pretty darn good. What what golf course would you most like to get your hands on? Hmm. Oh, I wish I could wish I could convince the people at Augusta to think a little bit differently. Sometimes I like the fact that they've made the the course difficult, but. Um, what what would you do oh, there? Boy. What would you recommend? Well, I think the bunkering is a mess, frankly, at Augusta. It's all you know. It's so it's so such high maintenance. I don't. The sand was never intended to be flashed way up the slopes on those bunkers. They they were originally deeper, you know, relatively deep bunkers with 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 turf faces on them. Yeah, they, I mean, so, they look like you know, they look more like McKinsey bunkers originally. They got away from that, though. Oh, yeah. In this, in the present situation, I mean, you've been there, I'm sure, because you live in Georgia. But you know, and I've been there quite a few times. But mm-hmm. oh man, they, you know, they've got bunker wool in the, under all those slopes, you know, and even that's probably outdated now. There's probably something that they should be 
replacing it with. But, um, you know, they've, they've got this fabric in there that's like a carpet to hold the sand up in the, on those slopes, you know. Um, they sort of did the same thing at Marion, but now they're going to redo a lot of Mar- work at Marion. So, but Fazio did the same thing at Marion, which was, you know, not the way they were originally constructed yeah. by any strip of the imagination, you know. So was, are, is there another course other than Augusta that you were going to say? I can't think of anything in particular I'd really like to, you know, that I'd like to get my hands on. I, I think that, you know, the sort of... The great golf courses, like Shinnecock, is really high on my list. Pine Valley, I still I, I love Pine Valley because of the amount of effort it took to build that golf course. You know, there are things there are things about Pine Valley that just are extraordinary. But you know, I think the Country Club in Brookline is a magnificent golf course, and it really it's been touched a little bit, but not too much, you know. And so. I would love to, you know, I would like to be a consulting architect on some of the some of the great old golf courses just to make sh- make sure they don't do anything more because some have gone ahead and you know and they've restored them with somebody that I didn't necessarily that I didn't necessarily think was you know capable of doing the work at the time that he did it. Maybe he's maybe they're better now, you know. But that's 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 probably the only thing. I think there are a few that. Um, and even my own work is that way. You know, some of the earlier work, um, you know, certainly I can't say that I'd be as proud of it today as I am of Portland or um, Cedar Rapids Country Club, which we just finished last year. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm enormously proud of those. But Texarkana, you know, I sort of bite my tongue a little bit when I see it. The Country Club's got on the U.S. Open uh, schedule, I think, isn't it? In the Am I right right about that? I think that's I think they're hosting. I don't know. You, know, they, you might get that phone call. They were talked. They were talked to. Yeah, they, people were talking to them about the nineteen uh, about the twenty thirteen because that was the hundred year anniversary, you know, of, of uh, Francis. We met, who I met years ago. I, I used to play in a tournament there. That, really? I think I mentioned the Jake, <laughs> and uh, I met him when he was there. But how old? How old there. is but he? Anyway. Um, Oh, well, let's see. I mean, he was 19 years old, I think, when he won the tournament in 1913. So I met him when he probably was um, 70, about 70 years old. I didn't realize this, but I was—I just happened to be looking through the U.S. Amateur uh, final matches. He, he was a prominent amateur, you know, 20 years after he won the, the U.S. Open. He... I think he won another U.S. Amateur oh, yeah. and uh, was always, you know, right there into the 20s and 30s, I believe. A great player. Oh, yeah, he was, he was a terrific player. You know, he really was and an, obviously an amateur all his life, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I have a lot of admiration for him. I think Bobby Jones was, you know, one of the greatest sportsmen to ever live and the way he lived his life and, you know, playing as an amateur. You know, what's interesting, I... He in, in his life he played basically, he basically played tournament golf from the time he was 14 years old to I, I'm pretty sure 28. In 14 years he played in 54 tournaments of any consequence, and 14 of them were majors. You know, it might, might have been the British Amateur and the U.S. Amateur, but mm-hmm. can you imagine? That's how I mean, he was going. He went to I think four universities, maybe five, but. 
he he cast Boy. i mean he still casts a long shadow in this town <laughs> i was i was over at oh, I, I was over yeah. at uh, Peachtree golf club last week and uh i'm writing us another story on um Ooh. robert trent jones and kind of the courses that he designed around georgia and, and some of his stylistic yeah. things and yeah i walked out to Peachtree, and their superintendent walked out and he said we consider this a bobby jones golf course not a robert trent jones golf course <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that's good. That, that, the, I, I, re, I restored uh, Highlands Country Club up, up in North Carolina, where he, yeah. his father was one of the original owners, mm-hmm. and um, that was a neat because he lived up there. He had a house up there. Yeah, he played he, a lot of golf there. He played a lot of golf there. That was that was a that's a that is a neat golf course. A lot of the, a lot of the prominent Atlantans. That's their second golf course, you know. And, I used to tell people that maybe as close as close as I get to heaven. That was just a beautiful place up there. I haven't so, been to Highlands, yeah. but that air, whole area is great. I, well, they got a great superintendent. Yeah. Okay, here's the last question uh, for you, Ron. Name okay. name the best three art museums that you've ever been to. Well, I mean, obviously the Louvre is one. You know that I think it's phenomenal. Um, Oh gosh, I'm trying to think of the. Um, I mean, I I love some of the Western. I'm trying to think of the one up in Tulsa that's that's so good. And there's one in um, Eamon Carter. I think is in Tulsa, and there's one in in Fort Worth that's great. You know, um, well, there. You know, where I would love to go is over to um, Holland because there's a there's there's a museum full of Van Gogh's work over there and. I would love to see it. Well, he, his, a great exhibition of his work came to the United States, and I kind of followed. Uh, it was, it was in Los Angeles and uh, Washington. I think I saw it in Washington D.C. and I flew out to Los Angeles to to see it. Also, it was, it was so gorgeous, you know. Um, so, you know, I, as I say, you know, contemporary art doesn't really stir me much. Philadelphia Art Museum is great. I mean, that's a that's a you could spend a lot of time there, and of course, mm-hmm. and I and I would say you know the National Art Gallery in Washington D.C. is yeah great too yeah yeah you can you can definitely kill some time there. What is the the art museum in in Fort Worth? Uh, is that the one where they have the uh, like the um, Rothko room, and there's like some natural light that comes comes through the ceiling, and it lights up the room naturally? Well, there's one there's, there's one there's one in Houston that's like maybe that. That, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, there's one in Houston that's that's like that. Yeah, but you know, I mean, any pretty any of these major cities that have they'll have they'll have you know some some great art. But for me, you know, it's really looking at the old masters, and I'm stunned by what they've done. I just was looking at a listen to someone interview a fellow that someone that just wrote a book on uh, uh, Michelangelo, no Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci today they were talking about it. And so I'm going to get that book because he was, you know, I mean, when you, when you talk about gi- giants of, of of talent, he was sure as heck one of them, you know. Yo. So, and, and people don't people giant. people just don't that that's that whole thing I was talking about earlier where where our generation and. You know, even even gener- even generations that preceded us a little bit, they don't have, they just don't have an, a, the proper appreciation for the people who were who preceded us. You know, certainly from an art art artsy standpoint. Obviously, when you come to technology and computers and things like that, which 
you know, that's, that's racing ahead at light speed, isn't it? Yeah. Well, as, as far as golf goes, you're, you're doing, uh, you're doing your, your share of the work to, to keep the, the historical grades on, on everybody's mind and relevant still. So Ron, we, yeah, well, thank, thank you. Yeah, this was fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. We're doing this, uh, it's a little after 11 o'clock East coast time now. So I usually, I do these during the day, but, um, I might start doing these uh, at night now. I had a glass of bourbon in front of me the whole time, and um, it's just a good way to oh, wrap good. up the night. So I, I appreciate talking well, to you. I, yeah, I want to thank you for calling. I mean, I think you did a, you know, you asked good questions that um, some I couldn't answer, but I hope I, you know, I hope I answered them adequately. But, um, you know, I'm a pretty happy guy, to be honest with you, that this, at this point in my life, I really, you know, I think, I think that, it's been a worthwhile business to be in. I think it's in good hands. So thank you for your interest. And uh, I, I wish you all the success in the world with, with your blog. I hope it, I hope it does really well because um, you're, you're a credit to the game yourself. Thanks. You know, I think we left some meat on the bones so we could always uh, do this again sometime down the road and I'll, I'll check back in on you. So it's been a delight. Uh, thanks a lot, Ron. Thank you very much. Thanks, Derek. I look forward to it. Okay. So, wow, that was good. That was one of the most wide-ranging interviews I've ever had. Uh, Parts of it felt like to keep up, we needed annotations and and footnotes. I don't have much to add. Uh, The the name of the museum, I couldn't think of the name, is is the Kimball Art Museum. It is in Houston, like Ron said. Uh, It was designed by Louis Kahn, and the architecture of the building allows natural light to come in through the ceiling to uh, illuminate the art in a special way. Uh, I'm also a little disappointed that I I airballed a, a a perfect chance to make a Hanson brother joke when Ron was speaking about uh, some buddies he had in college, three brothers who all played uh, on the hockey team on the same line. Uh, how how could I have whiffed on that? And I also thought it was kind of timely and interesting that he brought up uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, it was just announced, you know, today or yesterday actually that uh, one of his paintings sold at auction for four hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, a new record, uh, and there are only something like 19 Da Vinci paintings in existence. So uh, Ron was feeling something in the atmosphere uh, relating to Da Vinci that that you know maybe made him sense that and and use use that. I, I'm not sure the context that it, exactly that it came up, but but he was feeling Da Vinci in some way that was very pertinent to the current events. I also wanted to circle back to uh, something we were speaking about with uh, regarding Desmond Murhead, the uh, architect that uh, Ron worked with uh, in the 1970s. Murhead was a fascinating figure in, in golf course architecture, um, a little bit of a gadfly. He was capable of being a good architect. He obviously worked with, with Jack Nicholas for a while. Together they designed Murfield Village, which is, you know, by almost every measure, considered one of the top 30 courses in the United States. Uh, later in his career, he really kind of went off on his own tangent and we talked about this in the podcast a little bit but you know Murhead was very fascinated with uh, very esoteric um, allegorical things and by the time he was winding up his career in uh, I believe it was the 1980s at that point he was you could say off the rails almost with his design it's, it's amazing that anybody paid him to design some of the features that he did his most famous golf course uh, 
at least or infamous was uh, a place called Stone Harbor, and I think it was in New Jersey. The whole place was a motif for for different types of mythology, when and in a literal way, not a not a sort of um, the sublime or, or subtle way, but very literal translations of, of Greek myths. For the, the most famous example was he built an island green, which was not uh, terribly uh, original at that by that point. The green was shaped kind of like a football, and instead of having flanking bunkers, he had flanking island bunkers. They were separated from the green, separated by water. They were on each side of the green, two islands with bulkheads around them, shaped uh, sort of with like um, teeth. So it looked like the two bunkers were gnashing this central football figure. So it was possible from a, a playing perspective, you could hit a golf shot out toward the green, miss the green, and be in the water. Or if you missed it badly enough, you would actually land in the bunker. Um, and this was a very famous golf hole, and not not for the best reasons. But that was, you know, kind of the the reference point that, that Ron and I were speaking of, of Muirhead. Uh, a fascinating guy, as we heard, but, you know, again, I'll go back and say it, like I said in the podcast, you know, probably not in the right profession. But I hope you got something out of the conversation. I hope you stuck uh, with it the whole time. I know that was a long one. Ron Pritchard is, you know, obviously, or at least obviously to me, one of the most interesting people in in golf course architecture, uh, a man of many passions and and talents and and interests. Um, And I think that came through in the uh, pretty clearly in the podcast in our conversation. So please keep checking back at feedtheball.com for upcoming podcast episodes. Look at theduncanlist.com for golf course reviews and other golf features. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at The Duncan List. Thanks again for listening, and we'll send you out with a little bit of Beethoven's Concerto No. 5 for Piano. <laughs>